welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. I'm Ryan Rogers, and also a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 5 of The Beach, recorded during March break, March 18, 2020. Thanks for joining me today. You're listening to Snail's T-shirts, and the outro today is Death of a Dream. Thanks again to Snail and Christoph Oaks for the use of his music. You can find his album on Spotify and Bandcamp. We have some corrections. First, the ending to Watchmen by Alan Moore does technically, if you really pay attention, make sense. Apologies for saying otherwise. And finally, the Queen is not my mum. Long live the Queen. And I'm going to get my puckering, peeping pee performances away from the microphone so we don't have so many peaked moments in the audio. I'll try my best. I promise. In dinosaur news, we have Sauropod Strides, a study of sauropod tracks. Shows the dinosaurs had a gait unlike any creature alive today says an article. Current Biology has published the article, A New Method to Calculate Limb Phase from Trackways Reveals Gait of Sauropod Dinosaurs, early in March. The paper says limb phase, which is the timing of footfalls in quadrupedal locomotion, which describes common gaits such as a trot and a pace, is widely believed to be practically impossible to estimate for extinct tetrapods. The authors say, well, didn't you try doing this? And then they presented a new approach, which uses Variation patterns in long trackways, which was tested on modern animal trackways, where the, quote, the estimates generally correspond well with the actual limb phase, unquote. They applied that approach to the limb phases of giant, wide-gauged sauropods based on three long trackways from the lower Cretaceous of Arkansas, USA. They found that a front foot touched down on the ground just before a hind foot on the opposite side was lifted, suggesting the giant creatures didn't wobble as they walked. The footfalls of the diagonal limb pairs are more closely related than those of the limbs on the same side of the body. Thus, the front left foot walked in sequence with the rear right foot or the diagonal pair, and vice versa. Why? This theoretically provides more support throughout the step cycle, reducing the animal's giant girth from swaying from side to side while it walked, which would result in imbalance or simply wasting precious energy. We have Torosaurus taxonomy. The Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society published in early March a paper called The Record of Taurosaurus in Canada and Its Taxonomic Implications, in which the authors weigh in on whether the Taurosaurus is a species of Triceratops or not, which has been a scientific uncertainty. Some have argued that Taurosaurus is, quote, simply a skeletally mature growth form of the contemporaneous Triceratops. Their study, however, describes and illustrates the relevant frill material from Canada associated with Taurosaurus and determined it is, quote, most plausibly attributable to the Taurosaurus morph. And furthermore, their osteohistological sampling shows that this is a not-yet-mature adult. This finding, in addition to other considerations presented within the paper, lead the authors to conclude that Taurosaurus is a valid genus and not simply a mature growth form of a Triceratops. This study is led by author Jordan Mallon, who may be familiar for being the Canadian paleontologist who helped name the Ceratopsian Spiclipius Shiporum, which was a chasmosaur of the late Cretaceous, introduced in 2016. Spiclipius Shiporum is Latin for spike shield uh, for Bill and Linda Ship, and that's a pretty good name, eh? What about Mr. Spiclipius? Do you like that name? Mr. Spiclipius. Well, first of all, congratulations on pronouncing it correctly. Yeah, okay. 
Yeah, that's that's fine. Yeah, I, I respond to that. All right. With me for some fun this episode is research scientist and dinosaur paleontologist from the Canadian Museum of Nature, Jordan Mallon. We went after we both swiped right on a double blind catfishing scheme. And oddly enough, we've hit it off. So we're going to we're going to do a podcast now. I'll never swipe right again. <laughs> so you had news this week that came out about um, settling the debate on Taurosaurus, whether it was a distinct species or not. When you publish something like that, do you, do you doom scroll through the comments afterwards to see how irate some people become over this? Well, first of all, thank you for seeing that. I'm glad you saw that. <laughs> do I doom scroll? Yeah, I admit I, a little bit I do. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm on Twitter. I, I use Twitter specifically for mm -hmm. outreach, professional outreach. And so I post my research on Twitter. So it's always fun to read the reaction to that or to... Google the, the the URL for the paper and see how people are you right. know, uptaking it or, or whatnot. So, yeah, there's a bit of that. In this case, you know, the debate about Taurosaurus is whether or not it's just an adult form of Triceratops. Mm -hmm. I, I think that notion is really unpopular, for better or for worse. And so uh, a lot of the sort of dino medias on the Internet are, are on my side. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So it's very affirming in that sense, I suppose. But The recap was that uh, there was some provocation that perhaps a Taurosaurus was just a more mature version of a Triceratops and that therefore the two were likely or arguably the same species. But yeah, uh, there, yeah. there was evidence on either side that said, man, maybe not. And your evidence has I, said maybe not or probably I not. Think, yeah, I think this idea this debate, as it were, that, that Taurosaurus is a mature growth form of Triceratops is a really cool idea. I think mm -hmm. it's, a, I, I think it's a, a great hypothesis and one that we can test, mm -hmm. uh, which is what I attempted to do in, in this paper of mine that just came out, which argues otherwise, which argues that Taurosaurus and Triceratops are two different things based mm -hmm. on various lines of evidence, but mostly having to do with their bone histology, looking at the the growth marks left in the bone and what that might suggest about mm -hmm. whether one is more mature than the other. And there's more work to be done there. I make that point in the paper, but yeah, I, I, you know, the, the guy who suggested the synonymy of Taurosaurus and Triceratops, mm -hmm. John Scanella is a good, good friend of mine. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and he's, he's completely game when it comes to testing these ideas and, and he takes offense in my thinking otherwise. Uh, so I, I respect the hell out of him for that. So like when you do something like this, do you shake hands and go, okay, uh, it's settled? Or do you, do you hold your breath and wait for the, the, the retort? I, I'm under no illusions that I've settled the debate. Uh, I, I think there still needs to be more, more evidence, mm -hmm. you know, one way or the other. I don't think I've settled the, the debate by any means. I, I think I've just provided one more piece of evidence in mm -hmm. favor of the the traditional classification of these two things as, as separate genera, but I, I have no re, no doubt that there's more research to come. In fact, I know there's more research in the pipelines that'll oh. weigh in on the debate. So. <laughs> okay. I just threw my hat in. That's all right. And uh, and certainly this is uh, something that work that's been done on the pachycephalosaurs that have. They said, well, maybe these are juvenile to mature. They're, the specimens show a spectrum of, of a single species going through uh, different ages versus distinct species at different times. Uh, and then the Tyrannosaurus as well just had their moment where... Um... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yes, they did. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to split one species into three. Yeah, 
the pendulum keeps swinging back and forth, right? Mm -hmm. We we distinguish in paleo or taxonomy generally yeah. between lumpers and splitters, between those people who would subsume all these various species under one species and maybe mm. recognize subspecies at most, or the the other opposite extreme where these people would break up of you know, <laughs> as many species as there are individuals almost. And, you know, this is something that there's a lot of this going on today, as, as you say, in paleo Taurosaurus and the Pachycephalosaurus and T-Rex, but it's been going on forever, really. Mm, yeah. The yeah. early paleontologists Cope and Marsh that were finding a lot of the first dinosaurs in the Jurassic mid Midwest were easily uh, splitters. They named every tooth they found. <laughs> and then there was a sort of a, a swing back. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, of Peter Dodson's work in the 70s. Peter Dodson, Canadian paleontologist based in the States now. But he did. He had a great paper in the 70s synonymizing a lot of different duck-billed dinosaurs, for example, right. recognizing that that what we were calling different species are just growth forms of one another or male and female of one another. Mm -hmm. You know, so the pendulum swung back that way in the 70s with respect to duck-billed dinosaurs and, we, and some folks split them up again. It's a difficult science in that it's hard to know what yeah. the right answer is. It's hard to confirm the right answer. It's, and you're trying to compare a tooth to a jaw to a leg to a finger, and you know, well, it's not always that's the, apples to apples, yeah, is it? That's the nature of paleontology yeah, that yeah. makes it that makes it difficult and interesting, I guess. That's what keeps us employed as paleontologists: is the the incomplete nature of the fossil record. Mm -hmm, you know, if mm -hmm. we had if we had all the fossils, we'd probably have we'd have all the answers, and then uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. and then we'd have to move on. <laughs> well, thank you for your comment on on that. That's that's breaking news. Jordan, in his professional profile, people should understand that he has unlocked the greatest achievement that there is. Under specialties, it says, dinosaurs. So you, you've won the game of life. Uh, that's pretty cool to me. When you go to school to become a paleontologist, how often does the Jurassic Park book come up on the syllabus? Ah, good question. Um, <laughs> let me think. In my schooling, never. Yeah. Never, never, never. I think... I think by the time you get to university, you probably read it by then. Or certainly I did. So. Yeah. It was on the syllabus in grade school. Was you know, it? I think I wrote a book report on it in grade, I don't know, seven or eight or something oh, yeah. like that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, you t there's often, uh, there's often uh, you know, in a lot of science fiction uh, courses you might do, Jurassic Park inevitably comes up. And so there might be discussion that ensues from there. I, I did my, uh, my undergrad at Carleton University. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, they had something called Suds and Slides, where all the earth science majors would get together, drink beers, and watch goofy sci-fi movies okay. surrounding, you know, apropos earth science or, or paleontology or what have you. So Jurassic Park was certainly on the, on the list there, but that wasn't for credit. <laughs> no, no, no doubt. Does it, um, I, like in economics classes, I don't think that Gordon Gecko from Wall Street comes up very often, but does... When um, you're going up through through the different classes and learning, but it, does it come up as a reference? Um, I mean, I, surely it's not on the syllabus. I was being facetious, of course, but um, do people make mention of it to to relate to 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 the curriculum? Yeah, I think people can't help but relate to it yeah. just because it's such a you know it's so entrenched in popular culture. You know, I think most people's ideas now what a dinosaur looks like comes from Jurassic Park. Yeah, uh, for for better or for worse. You know, I. I remember being at the store a couple of years ago and they had 
plushy dinosaur plushies in the store. They were just no name brand one-off dino plushies, but they had a Dilophosaurus there with yeah the big crest on it, right? The big frill that, that mm -hmm. they made up for Jurassic Park. And this was not a Jurassic Park product at all, but because that's the popular image now, yeah. what, what Dilophosaurus, that's literally what everyone thinks Dilophosaurus looks like now, right? So uh, yeah, when we think dinosaurs, we think Jurassic Park quite often. Mm -hmm. there's, there's no escape from that. I liked how the, the movie adapted some some known reptilian traits to try and characterize their their portrayal of the dinosaur. I thought that was really inventive. But you're right, it has had a maybe a more significant impact than they, they, they might have imagined. <laughs> I, yeah, I, you know, that's that's interesting. I, I gather that, that the folks who worked on the movie recognized at the time that it would be something special, certainly when they were coming up with the special effects. I don't know if I don't know if there was as much conversation about the impact that it would have mm -hmm. on on paleontology, right? Right. Um, you know, Jurassic Park was a big inspiration to me growing up uh, to become a paleontologist, and and I know for a fact that that's true of many other folks heard, around yeah. my age. You know, who are in the field now. There was just an explosion of interest, uh, which led to an explosion of new paleontologists coming up through the ranks. In fact, more than there's room for in the field. There's not a ton of money in paleo, so um, mm. there aren't a ton of positions. It gets competitive, uh, yeah. Oh, it's competitive. All of academia is yeah. competitive, you know, not just paleontology in any sense. <laughs> so you, have you read the book? You mentioned it was a high school uh, book report. Have you read it post uh, dinosaur oh, I, experts? I've not read it very recently, I no. admit, but I, I read it a ton as a kid. I, I, in fact, because I knew we'd be talking about the book, I brought my copy and it's all... I got the same it's one. All, oh. It's all very dog-eared. Yep. Yeah. There this, you go. This <laughs> must have come out in association with the movie, of course, and so we all have the same uh, 93 edition. Yeah. Pretty cool. I, I remember when I bought that, in fact, it was shortly after seeing the movie. Yeah. I went with my mom to the drugstore, Shoppers Drug Mart, yeah. which is still there, and I bought the book, and then we went, I remember we went to Tim Hortons for donuts or whatever, and mm -hmm. I started reading the book in there, because I couldn't wait. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what what are some of your favorite memories from, from the text that uh, either stick out or, you know, oh boy. ring true or I... ring false, or things like that? Yeah, well, of course, the book's pretty different from the movie. Yes. So that that's one thing that that really struck me reading it. I, you know, the movie came out in '93. I was 11 when the movie came out, and I would have been 11 when I started reading this book. Right. And um, I remember I would read it every night before bed, and I remember being struck by how different it was from the movie. I think this was the first time I had ever read a book that had a movie adaptation other than maybe a Disney mm -hmm. uh, golden books or something like that, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um, but that struck me. I think the violence struck me. I remember reading, there's the, there's the parts in the book where, you know, Dennis Nedry's stealing the embryos and he gets eaten alive by, mm -hmm. you know, the Dilophosaurus. And in the book, I think it explains pretty in pretty gruesome detail about his gut spilling out. Yes. And, being There's disemboweled another, happens Ed, a lot, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, the, the character, I think it's Ed Regis, gets eaten by a baby Tyrannosaur in the book, right? That's right, yeah. 
I don't know. Yeah, I remember that being pretty gory too. But I remember reading those parts and then having to turn out the lights. And, you oh, know, yeah. you're, you're 11 years old. You're kind of like, oh, geez, now we got to go to sleep. Yeah. Thinking about that. <laughs> I think Wu gets his uh, intestines put on the floor. I think Nedry gets kicked. His intestines wind up on the floor. What really got me was um, at the beginning, there's the bassinet with the baby. And you can mm, see the copies yeah. and the, the they describe that you could already see um, just by the color, the red that was all over. That uh, Yeah, it was tearing the flesh off the baby's face, right? And uh, yeah. they don't go into particular detail, but just that she didn't have to look to know that the baby hadn't survived. And I thought, wow, that's there was a lot of, you're right, some of it was very graphic and some of it was um, implied, but it was all very, uh, it had a lot of gravitas to it, that's for sure. It was... Uh, intimidating to think that especially for a kid yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) and of course yeah we couldn't wait to watch the movie we had to get the book right away and or read it over and over yeah it's crazy because after the i mean it didn't come out on cassette for for quite a while and and so i'm sure we i remember too many times yeah waiting for that i remember dang cassette i remember i remember trying to get the cassette with my dad Mm -hmm. my the movie came out and i think because the VHS only came out a year, or a year and a half later. And I remember my dad and I, my dad would, on Friday nights as a, as a kid, my dad would take my sister and I up to the mall and we'd go to the arcade, blow two bucks there on video games or uh-huh. whatever. But I, I remember around that time, uh, every Friday night, we'd go to the, the video store at the mall and ask, like, is Jurassic Park out yet? <laughs> said, no, not yet. No, not yet. No, yeah. not yet. Ask us next time. <laughs> Nothing takes we that did long that, now, yeah. did that for a while. Yeah. It took forever, but, you know, that was kind of special, the the, the, the delayed gratification. It's like mm. anything now, right? Mm. It's like, it was like waiting for Christmas back then. I wonder if it, Now my kids just watch Netflix and they can binge the whole yeah. thing at once. That's the longest anybody had to wait to watch it, I think, is that time between the movie and then the cassette. Otherwise, since then, we've all have been able to watch it whenever we want. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It was... It was uh, yeah, it was like waiting for Christmas. That's the best comparison. Mm-hmm, for sure. And I'm, I'm a, so when I read the book, I'm looking for, especially as I'm trying to do like this deep dive on it, uh, for new ideas and inspirations and topics to consider so I can, you know, ask it questions and have it ask me questions and then think about it and try and research what it all means in the end. To you, was there anything you wonder about the book or a question or something that was confusing that you'd be interested to know more about? Oh, boy. That's a good question. Anything I'd be curious to know more about, I guess I'd be, I guess what I'd be curi- most curious about now is mm-hmm. just behind the inspiration of some of those ideas, mm-hmm. some of the people, you know, I did, I did do some prep before this and, uh, and listen to your last episode of your podcast. And, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> and you, and you, you talk there, you, I think you read the, 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 the opening chapter there mm-hmm. talking about how some of the. Uh, technology companies that are referenced there are actually not they, they, they exist in reality which mm-hmm. i wasn't aware of and you drew drew some comparisons there between hammond and woo and real life personalities in the tech business today which i wasn't aware of that i think that's really interesting and uh, I, I i think i'd be interested in, in pursuing that a little more mm-hmm. you know those would be the questions that kind of come up for me. They name a few. They make a few touchstones. One, I think Muldoon, is ref, they reference a particular. I can't think of the uh, the real life safari uh, zoo designer, but Muldoon was based off of a character, and 
the do you remember the i think it was called the Terratops lodge the restaurant they didn't open in the aviary yes i do remember that yep. and the, it's spelled different than the spelling i can find but the the school that the chef that was going to make the uh, the chilean sea bass is uh school to the same place that Wolfgang Puck was uh, famously educated oh, at. Oh, no kidding. So See, I that's want, cool. That's cool yeah. to me, to make those connections. Yeah, yeah. So certainly there's, Crichton had his touchstones that he was incorporating. And so when he makes, when he doesn't do a lot, we were saying a lot of, that, you know, he doesn't use a lot of flowery language. But when he does make an illusion, it has, it has a, a, a real life analog that means something. And he's borrowed something of, of that real life thing to make uh, sense of what he's putting into the park. So, I try and find there's one thing that I'm going to get into eventually is um, Nedry's password was Mr. Goodbites. Mm, and yes, I've got yeah. I've got an X-rated 10 page long discussion on what that possibly means. But because um, <laughs> I can only guess, but I, I got a pretty good argument for it, I think. Um, Mr. Goodbites. I, yeah, I wouldn't have the slightest clue. And of course, there was the white rabbit thing too, white yeah. rabbit object that mm -hmm. made its way into the movie. That I don't remember that reference. I remember <laughs> that's a reference to what Alice in Wonderland. But mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and there's there's a couple. What's that moves. all about, right? Yeah, I know that at the end they go through that tunnel to uh, get into the raptor nest, and uh, there's following the rabbit hole that kind of pops them through. The other thing. Uh, the white rabbit is kind of like the, one of those uh, those things that pull you through the story. You follow the rabbit, and then you and you know embark upon adventure. And I think yeah. if we, I don't know if there's a way to put it, but like the the compi, those little lizard bites at the beginning of the book, they kind of are the thing that leads us to the park. And um, the story ends up getting dropped. But uh, I wonder if the compi could be seen as the white rabbit that kind of travel. You know, mm. it follows the narrative. You, this the the science follows. What is this thing? The questions all lead up to Grant, and then Grant gets uh, taken to the island to further, I guess, explore what this lizard might be. And I don't know. I don't know. If there's now a I have to read the book again. <laughs> you know, most of this stuff it asks for you to go back and look later, and maybe you can find something new out of it when you read it again. But it doesn't in and of itself at that moment as you read it necessarily mean a whole lot so it makes you wonder <laughs> but i guess there's, in terms of doing a deep dive it, it's worth to go back and look and see what you can find so that's been fun yeah it's yeah it's yeah, absolutely it's one of those books i think you know although it's been a few years now since i've read it as mm -hmm. i say i've read it probably i don't know how many times 10 times or whatever growing up and yeah yeah it's one of those times it's one of those books where you you go back and read it or you listen to it on uh, audio book or something like that, yes. and, and every time you read it, you you notice something something new, yeah. new or something different, which is the sign of a good a good story when you when you can go back to it with fresh eyes yeah. and see something new in it. I used to so at, at the same era, um, I picked up like as many Far Side uh, anthologies as I could, and uh, and still today, picking up an uh, an old book of the the Far Side comics. There's new jokes. You go, oh, I didn't, I never got that before. <laughs> and even them. So and most of them you still don't get, but there's every once in a while, you go, oh, I wonder what that was about. Um, yeah, but yeah my, I've got it. kids of my own now who mm -hmm. are growing up watching a lot of the same movies that I did as a kid. And, mm -hmm. and it's always, a, you always get a bit of pleasure out of it when you get the references that you didn't get as a kid in the movies, you know? <laughs> Yeah, oh, this was written for adults too. I didn't appreciate that as a kid. <laughs> well, certainly written by adults, and they sometimes can't help themselves, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. While I have a dinosaur professional, um, 
a specialist. I, I have a case to be made. You remember Dr. Harding, the veterinarian? Mm, I do, yeah. He's a lasting yep. character in the book. He kind of gets introduced midway, but he survives to the end. He has heroic moments. He gets to uh, help Sattler, I think, escape Velociraptors on the roof of the visitor center. He also is the one that's... Did he do that? Yeah, I don't remember that. I remember she jumped into a pool. Yes. I don't remember him helping her do that. I think he meant to help her, but he had things backwards, and she ended up getting trapped or locked out or something. But he intended to. He okay. had good intentions. He's the one administering um, medications to Ian Malcolm, and he has, yep, he yeah. has no first name. <laughs> but I have a case to make that he may not be a very good veterinarian. And so, mm. uh, case one, the stegosaurs are getting poisoned, and there is the toxic West Indian lilac plants that are in the habitat. Uh, I would think, uh, before you diagnosed anything, oh, there's these toxic plants and you have a poisoned animal, step one would be, before you dig through any dung, to just remove the plants. Straight off the island, because you've got a bunch of dumb herbivores that you just don't need toxic plants for them to even try to eat. So that was step one. Two, he does dig through the dung, and ignores the traces of the toxic West Indian lilac berries, which were, I guess, confirmed to be causing the illness, because he was only looking for the toxic West Indi Indian lilac shrubbery. So, uh, point two. Three, uh, he has no record of what quantity of tranquilizer you use to dose the Tyrannosaur, which seems like that should be something you would have figured out, at least along the way. <laughs> I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt on that one, given that dinosaurs in the story are relatively new so yes I'm, i don't know did he write the did he write the book on veterinary treatment of dinosaurs yet i i don't know <laughs> he, he certainly intended to that's right that's a, the, one of the points um but the, i think most of all most most indicting is there are multiple species all over the island that are breeding they're mating they're nesting they're raising young that are undocumented and he never noticed and he doesn't believe mm. it. when they find the eggshell he goes that can't be a dinosaur right he literally convincingly, wholeheartedly, does not believe that they could be breeding. So that raises a couple questions. Maybe this guy is not a great veterinarian. So maybe we can role play a little bit and you can tell me what, uh, as a specialist, you think. Say a male, perhaps a velociraptor, spontaneously one day changes gender in the wild per the frog DNA explanation, and this dude finds himself in a harem of ladies. He's suddenly the last man on earth, so to speak. What signs that there's a male amongst the females, might a veterinarian who's observing these animals, if not in the wild, at least on monitors, begin to notice, in your opinion? What are the signs that he would look for that would suggest that there's a male in the wild? Oh boy, that's a good question. Well, I'll, I'll start by adding one more. It always, it always struck me watching the movie, too, because he's in the movie. And, yep. You know, he's trying to figure out why it's the triceratops that's sick in the movie, and he, he can't figure it out and in comes this a paleobotanist who figures out, well, I don't know in the movie if we actually really, I don't think that plot is finished, what, what yes. sort of happens. But presumably, it, it, it's the paleobotanist who comes in, saves the day, and figures out the issue. And, you, mm -hmm. and you're left wondering, like, how bad must this veterinarian be yeah. that he can't even do his own job, that someone who isn't even trained in his field, who works on fossil plants, yeah can come and solve this riddle. I thought that was kind of goofy. That was unfortunate, <laughs> it, yes. it speaks to your point, absolutely, yeah, yeah. But yeah, getting back to your question, what, well, what behavior signs might... Yeah. Behavior, oh boy. Well, of course, that presumes we know how velociraptors behave, which which we really don't we know. Don't but know. display behavior, you yeah. know, if we're, if we're looking, if we're looking at the animals, mm -hmm. 
if we're able to witness them, signs of, of display behaviors would certainly, I mean, very often we look at male or female birds, very often the males and females look differently. So presumably yeah. if there was a male introduced in the population, it might look a little bit different from the female. Mm -hmm. Who knows with frog DNA, that kind of brings <laughs> up the whole story. But, uh, you know, dinosaurs, certainly Velociraptor, we know had feathers. In fact, it had probably display feathers coming off of its arms. Mm -hmm. uh, we haven't found the feathers themselves, but we certainly found the, the quill knobs that suggest they had these types of feathers that, mm -hmm. that may have been used for something like sexual display. So, uh, yeah, sexual display form of dancing or something like that. Yeah. Uh, it might might be something we might look for. Yeah, that 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 strikes me as fairly obvious. Maybe they had special scent glands we don't know about. Okay. Who knows if human humans would be able to pick up on that? But maybe, you know, the vet might notice there's a new musk in the air that I don't mm. recognize, and that might that might turn on so turn off a trigger as well. With birds, we see the males doing all kinds of extraordinary things. A with feathers, but also dancing. The uh, that famous episode of the Dino uh, Dinosaurs by Jim Henson's group, uh, where it was just all about the mating dance, the, the world's prof youngest profession they called it. Uh, you, yeah, I think there would be something behavioral that would suggest that that there's well, a male that's looking and, at. Yeah, and you suggested one earlier too, just nesting behaviors, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. What the hell are they doing, creating nests for? Yeah. and laying eggs yeah. if there's no males on the island to breed with. You know, even if you don't have the eggs, if you see the dinosaurs building a nest, often nesting behavior mm -hmm. is triggered by the act of being gravid, of carrying eggs. So mm -hmm. you see your dinosaurs uh, start nest building. In this case, I think the velociraptors built their nest on the beach or something like that, underground. Something that might like, lead you to wonder what's going on there. Yeah, they're supposed to be underground <laughs> and nocturnal. The, the reason they couldn't observe all of this behavior is that they're nocturnal. But that mm. seems a little... A, a it, that means, you know, it's fairly species-specific when we know that there are other species on the island that are, are, are also reproducing. And, yeah, it falls a little short. Like, they're supposed to be on monitors, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, those monitors didn't work very well. No. That's one thing that, that always struck me in the book, too. That's another sort of plot line in the book. I remember Grant having to get the kids back to the lodge there by following all the all the uh, motion sensors the monitor the motion sensors that mm -hmm. were numbered i think he counted them down going east or whatever direction he was going in yeah yeah i remember that distinctly from the book and that's one thing that never made its way into the book because were those motion sensors mm -hmm. tracking the the animals yeah yeah there's a there are a couple matters that uh, i guess malcolm would say oh yeah well it's expected that you guys are idiots so that's why uh, chaos theory is probably right again. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, and the females, I think, if you had two males all of a sudden and they were, and you had a, a variety of impregnated uh, females or nesting females or even juveniles, you'd think that with uh, multiple males there could be different behaviors that would perhaps manifest themselves in terms of... Um, well, then, of course, you got, one you them. know, potentially mating competitioning. Happens, yeah, yeah. Right? If you've, got, if you've got more than one male... You know, there'd be plenty of females around. There wouldn't be much of competition. But mm -hmm. I suppose if you had a, a certain threshold of males, you might see competition between the males Yeah. for those females, which can, you know, we certainly think uh, there was some research came, that came out recently by a good friend of mine, Caleb Brown, at the Tyrrell Museum that mm -hmm. showed that tyrannosaurs 
were biting one another's faces right, on right. a regular basis, you mm -hmm. know, and we don't know why they did that, but competition for mates would potentially be a good explanation for that. Yeah. Uh, so dinosaurs certainly did that. And uh, if you saw it in a, in a wild population of dinosaurs yeah. that you thought were otherwise all female, you go, mm, what are they, you know, what are they competing for? You know, I'll exactly. see, I'll see lots of pictures of, and I'm not that, Jungle cats are analogs to dinosaurs by any stretch. I don't know that they're analogs for anything, but jungle cats, you'll see tigers and cheetahs and stuff like that are, are beautiful looking animals, but lions are, are commonly thrashed across the face. They have these scars and deep wounds and, and just, man, I don't think there's a single good thing about being a lion. They, they find a lot of trouble everywhere they go. The only ones they have to worry about are themselves, yeah. more or less. I guess that's the good thing about being a lion, but even <laughs> then, you you you've got you've still got to worry and and it was very much the case with dinosaurs too you mm. know I, again getting back to those tyrannosaurs who yeah. were constantly biting one another's faces that couldn't have been pleasant no i bet uh, you they were they're digging at the same carcass or something and uh could be could be they were yeah fighting over yeah. resources fighting for mates fighting for territory who mm. the heck knows well i guess they um, certainly weren't going to be swinging their arms at each other i mean they they had kind of the the one superlative weapon to to stop things and that was their huge head so it's it's all in the teeth yeah and crocs do the same you'll often yeah. see pictures of crocs with half their face bitten off and somehow they'd still manage to eke out a living but they bite one another's faces too actually that's part of caleb's work he was able right? to show this very same traces in uh, modern alligator skulls. So there's a great, there's a nice comparison there, a nice analog. So talking about other papers and alligators or crocodiles, you had one uh, as well that's kind of on this subject. And I'll see if I can pronounce all these things correctly, but it's the ontogeny of a sexually selected structure in an extant archosaur with implications for sexual dimorphism in dinosaurs. Mm. That wasn't so long ago that uh, you would be non-conversational about it, is it? Oh, boy. I have a really short memory, but I do remember publishing that paper. Well, I'm going to probably ask you some <laughs> hypothetical stuff, anyhow, that doesn't really relate to that specifically. But you, to recap, and Dr. David Hone, it says, Patrick Hennessy and Lawrence M. Whitner collaborated uh, to, Malcolm would say, lift the skirts on some modern-day gharials that you know are sexually dimorphic in size. The, is it the males are bigger? In in gharials, yes, the males are, are quite a bit bigger. And yeah, this and they species, have this, yeah, this big gara on the snout. Yeah, right. So it's, it looks like they tried to sniff like that new tennis ball smell out of the can, and then one of the balls got stuck on their snout, and they've got this. It's like that scene out of uh, out of a Total Recall when Schwarzenegger pulls that giant tracking device out of his nose. It's like it got <laughs> stuck, you know. <laughs> okay. In any case, so we've got this, uh, the ladies must like that because it's uh, become what, uh, what all the males need to have to, to make sure that they can propagate the species. So what might you have learned from that study that applies to dinosaur sexual dimorphism? Mm. Well, I guess I'll preface it by just saying that this is a topic that I've been tangentially interested in mm -hmm. over the years identifying sexual dimorphism dinosaurs and what all sexual dimorphism is 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 differences physical differences between uh, males and females mm -hmm. at least those are the differences that we look for uh, in the fossil record uh, I did my undergraduate work on 
a purportedly sexually dimorphic species of chasmosaur, which is a, okay. a horned dinosaur. So I think that's probably what, what got me interested in that. And Dave has written about dimorphism and sexual selection in the fossil record before too. So mm -hmm. we kind of got our heads together on this. Dave invited me in on this project because he had this great record, this great data set of measurements from these gharials, and he wanted help running the statistics on it. Mm -hmm. You know, I've published a paper before that argued that despite claims to the contrary, it's really hard to statistically support sexual dimorphism in the mm -hmm. fossil record. There's just so many unknowns that yeah. we need to control for in order to to show that that signal there, to show that there's two peaks, so to speak, right. be it in body size or, or in the shape of some purportedly dimorphic cranial crest or right. something like that. Primarily, you need to be able to control for age, you know. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you don't know if you're comparing uh, a young, large male to an old, smallish female. They're going to end up looking the mm -hmm. same, and you're not going to be able to, to tease that signal out. And so... This is other work that Dave and I have done too, a, a, a paper showing that where the, the gharials come into it was, this is an example of a really distinctly dimorphic species yeah. where the males are very obviously different from the females. And part of what we were trying to show was that even knowing that beforehand, if you don't discriminate for size or discriminate for age, it can be hard to distinguish those things unless you've got uh, unless you've got lots and unless you've got a feature like the gara right which is which is on the snout that it's either on or off right it's there or it's not and we don't there aren't many examples of these sort of bimodal or, or bivariate structures if you want to call it that mm -hmm. or um uh, binary structures is the word I'm looking for in the fossil record, right? We don't have good examples of dimorphism on that order in any known species of dinosaur. Usually it's, it's a continuous structure that might be better expressed in some individuals than others, but they've all got it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. And when you're sort of starting to blur the lines that way in the fossil record, it can get really hard to say, well, <laughs> these ones are the girls and these ones are the boys. Yeah. And, and certainly it would be difficult. I mean, you'd be hoping the only way it would work out in paleontology, you're hoping that it's going to be something that's remnant in, in a fossil, as opposed to if it were, you know, skin or, or color or plumage, like it, it's, it's got a fossilized or else you never, you, you won't be able to be just, you know, find the distinctions. It's hard. Yeah. And there's ways of getting about that, of, of getting around that issue in the fossil record. Oh, yeah. um, you know, there's, special type of bone that we find in birds today called medullary right. bone, which is found in gravid egg-laying females. And it's a special spongy type of bone that lines the inside of the bone. And, and it's basically a source of, of, of calcium for shelling those eggs. Mm -hmm. And so you know when you see that special medullary type of bone that you're, you've got a, a, a pregnant, as it were, or a gravid female. That's interesting. Um, we see that same bone in some specimens of dinosaurs, and we can definitively say, therefore, that these are females. Right the trick, then, is being able to correlate that bone 
with certain structures of the, the, the rest of the skeleton to be able to say, well, all the females look like this and all the males look like that. And of course, that's not a, you know, that's not a smoking gun piece of evidence either for being able to discriminate males from females mm -hmm. only because you it might be, if, if you don't see that special type of medullary bone, it might just be that you, you have female that's not laying eggs, you know? Right, right. So there's a distinction there that you have to be very careful about. So is the medullary bone found in, were you finding that in primarily theropods or do, when you were doing your ceratopsian work, did you find it there? Or who, well, I've not found it myself, but it's been reported in T-Rex. Yeah. I believe it's been reported in Brachylophosaurus too, a duck-billed dinosaur. It's been found in, in across various lineage, lineages, I should say, of dinosaurs. So yeah, we know that it was it was fairly widespread, not just in theropods. All right, very good. Okay, well, yeah, awesome. You studied- It is awesome, Ryan. It is awesome. I'm just going to interject there. It's amazing what we can say about dinosaurs now. Yeah. You know, that's something that we never thought we would know about it. And yet here we stand, we can start to say these are the boys and these are the girls based on this special bone type, not on not having to do with the other- Right build of the skeleton we're getting at questions about you know what color are dinosaurs now yeah. what color were their eggs and you know this is all stuff that reading books you and i growing up reading books they would have said uh, we'll never know about that that mm -hmm. information doesn't preserve and yet you know several breakthroughs later we're having these conversations which is really cool when you stop to think about it yes so uh, maybe the next pro uh, question could be a little bit more of an um, imagination exercise, but uh, having studied the subject of, of, uh, of sexual dimorphism, considered it and thought long and hard about it, perhaps we can review some of the breeding species that were in the book and you, you could hypothesize perhaps what, uh, what, how they might have differed. Other ways that Dr. Harding could have been you know, a little bit more attentive uh, <laughs> oh boy all right so I, i'm just gonna be winging it here yeah yeah it's imaginative i don't expect any you shouldn't be held accountable for that <laughs> your answers is what i'm saying there's, but, uh, there's nothing to hold me accountable to so it wouldn't <laughs> yeah, matter okay. yeah. uh, the mayasara are breeding they're mating is there is there any thoughts on how maybe a hadrosaur or an iguanodonid might have appeared different sexually that you can imagine um well, hadrosaurs, of course, many of the hadrosaurs have those big crests, you know, especially yeah. what we call the lambiosaurine hadrosaurids, which have big crests on their head, things like Hypacrosaurus and Lambiosaurus and Corythosaurus. They've got these big sort of Corinthian crests on their head. Myosaurus had a small crest. Mm -hmm. It was a crest nonetheless. As far as we know, the males didn't differ from the females in the shapes of those crests. They may have, we just can't pinpoint it yet mm. uh, maybe the males had slightly bigger crests than females but i certainly imagine that that they would have had different colors on those crests so you know something like a myosaur which has a very small thin crest on the top of its head behind the eyes above the eyes mm -hmm. might well be that the males had a, a different colored crest or a different coloring altogether across the body it could be yep so that's something I would look for. Different call. We know these hadrosaurs right. likely, and again, the lambiosaurians in particular, their crests were hollow. The nasal passages made their way through the crest, and they would have been able to pass air through them. And a colleague of mine, Dave Weishampel, showed back in the 70s, I guess it was, that uh, they would have made for great resonating chambers. So it may well be that the males had different calls than the females. And so that might have been a, a way of distinguishing them too by their by their calls. Yeah, some crazy honking or, or humming or something like that would be so bizarre. What if yeah, something like a 
it would have been very trombone sounding lots of lots of low end maybe like a tuba or something <laughs> like that the chrithosaurus could have been a french horn <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah well dave weishample back in the day and i remember seeing this on uh, documentaries when i was a kid actually mm-hmm. reconstructed with pvc piping uh the the crest of a parasaurolophus one of these looks like it literally has a big trombone sticking out the back of its head. Mm. he would blow through it and create all these low sounding notes and i thought that was pretty cool as a kid and in fact you, we've got an exhibit at the museum the museum of nature here in ottawa that uh yeah. that can replicate the sound of a parasaurolophus as well that'd be so crazy to hear them just yelling at each other from however far apart you needed to be <laughs> It would have been loud standing next to me. And in fact, I think, as I remember, Michael Crichton in his book talks about, I think the kids get caught up in a stampede of hadrosaurs at one point. Maybe that was in the second one. I I don't quite remember. It's a hadrosaurus and a stampede, but uh, they made it a gallimimus. It was hadrosaurus, I think, right, in the book. And and yeah, (sighs) they were really, really loud. Yeah. I have no doubt that he got that right. Um, Another species that was breeding was the Procompsignathus. Uh, and mm. they, those were escaping the island. Any thoughts on how those uh, those those types of animals might have been different? Oh, that's a good that's a good one. That that's a bit trickier because of course compsognathids don't have as much going for them of of great interest that <laughs> that we might really speaking like someone who doesn't really work on theropods, right? But they don't have any any interesting crests or anything like that on the head. Certainly nothing. Uh, visually spectacular like a hadrosaur mm-hmm. in that case if if they were dimorphic uh it might have been more subtle it might have been subtle differences in coloration mm-hmm. and there may well have been size differences too mm-hmm. not just in compies uh, alone but in many dinosaurs that, although again it's hard to pick out it with the fossil record with the samples that we have but mm-hmm. you know look at uh look at alligators today the the males are almost twice as big as the females, twice as long, nearly. Uh, certainly a really, really big male can be twice as long as a female. And so there might have been that type of variation there too, where the males were, were larger than the females uh, in something like a compsognathid, or vice versa, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, that'd be something else to look for. So uh, they've got the the little Ornithischian uh, Othnelia were breeding on the park as well. They'd be kind of like these bipedal little things they would have, what, had beaks and teeth? And have, have they been the ones I've found with, like, the feathers now down the back as well? Well, not not Othnelia per se, but yep. relatives of Othnelia we found with feather, feather-like structures, definitely. Yeah. You know, some of those small bipedal plant-eating dinosaurs, things like Heterodontosaurus, mm-hmm. of course, have uh, almost fang-like tusks at the front of the mouth, mm-hmm. uh, which are unusual among dinosaurs right uh, and it's been suggested that those tusks might have been sexually dimorphic cool uh, which could have been the case i would argue that it's a hard case to support yeah from the fossil record uh, i don't i think the evidence just isn't there but you know that's the case among living some living species and so it may well have been the case in dinosaurs too that certain certain sexes had tusks one of the sexes had tusks and the other didn't right. or something like that. We, yeah. we can think of like deer now have different, I guess it's horns on their head, but yeah. Just yeah, ant- antlers is another great example mm-hmm. where, you know, males have them and females don't. 
more often than not, there's some exceptions to that where both have antlers, but uh, there's not a direct parallel with dinosaurs, no. <laughs> as I mentioned, where, where you can't, where males have male triceratops horns and females don't. You know, every triceratops we found, they have horns, but there may well have been uh, differences in maybe in the length of the horns or in the shapes of the horns right. or at the or in the, the coloration of the frill or something like that. I mean, um, there may well have been parallels there. Yeah. Really cool. And the the other breeding beyond Velociraptor was uh, Hypsilophodonts, but I think we when you start talking about heterodontosaurs, uh, it seems to be a, kind of in the same line. They're not too distantly related. Yeah. Again, they don't have much interesting Hypsilophodonts, if you ask me, or but if you had to design the most generic boring dinosaur possible that would be that <laughs> and uh i say that with a smile on my face because i know i'm going to get in trouble for saying that from some of my colleagues but uh, bring it on <laughs> well if only they hear this then how about that <laughs> yeah yeah they but they uh, again don't have any interesting crests going on in the head generally speaking they were smallish they may males may have differed from females uh, as far as body size goes one might have been a little larger or they might have had different colorations or scents or or behaviors but um i think they might have been harder to pick out than something like a big hadrosaur i don't know i'm just speaking off the cuff here well you've been so forthcoming with your time i really really appreciate it you mentioned um you saw jurassic park when you were 11. Mm -hmm. you might yeah. do you have a, a milestone birthday coming up oh you know about that i do well, yeah I'm just turning, the math Oh, yeah, the math. Yeah, well, that's why I became a paleontologist, so I didn't have to do math. <laughs> turns, out I was, turns out I was wrong about that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I'm imagine. turning 40. I'm turning 40 next month. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Well, uh, whatever the opposite of happy belated is um, to you. It's very good. Pre-happy pre birthday. <laughs> unbirthday. I appreciate that. Unbirthday. Yeah. We yeah. go back to Alice in Wonderland. Happy unbirthday. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. That's the big four zero for me this well, you, like I said, you've been so forthcoming. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, I would have loved to ask uh, about the, the, the computer-assisted sonic tomography. I would have loved to have asked about the use of computers in paleontology. I would have loved to have asked about um, uh, Crichton's portrayal of the Tyrannosaurus that I think you really, really... Like that, that cover design, I think, is mm. related to one of the first manuscripts ever written on the Tyrannosaurus based on the AMNH 5027. And I think that very erect posture is the only way that the Tyrannosaur could be touching the fence. And I, I, I would love to, anyhow, <laughs> so many Ooh, things yeah. I want, uh, if, if there were I, infinite time. I'll be happy to chat again. And yeah. so if we want to talk about those on a subsequent episode, let's do it. I'm happy to geek out with you. Oh, I couldn't, I couldn't be happier. Well, thank you so much. Again, happy on birthday. Thanks to my special guest, Dinosaur Specialist, because that's <laughs> just the best title there is, uh, Jordan Mallon. Thank you so much. Thank you. What a thrill it was to, to chat with a dinosaur paleontologist about dinosaurs, about his own publications, and Jurassic Park at the same time. That's pretty cool. Let's get to the text. This week's chapter is The Beach, pages 20 to 22, a short one. And in a synopsis here, Gutierrez is puzzled by the mystery of the strangely described biting basilisk lizard and is interested in observing the specimen himself. So he visits Cabo Blanco. We have a couple different characters. Marty Gutierrez returns. He's intrigued with this lizard and researches it thoroughly, believing it's important to positively identify this animal for the safety of everyone in the area. He believes there's a new species of lizard out there. There's a medical officer from Amaloya. 
The medical officer reports that there have been a series of lizard bites. The lizard! Its bite leads to inflammation and is potentially lethal to infants. It's green with brown stripes. It bites? It's believed to be a previously unknown species based on the distinctive pattern of lizard bites over the past two months. And we have Dr. Edward H. Simpson. He's an acknowledged expert and emeritus professor of zoology at Columbia University in New York, who is the best person to have this lizard identified. An elegant older man with swept back white hair, Simpson is the world's leading authority on lizard taxonomy. There are a couple different localities. We have Costa Rica. Only 75 miles wide at its narrowest point, the country is smaller than the state of Maine. In that limited space, Costa Rica has a remarkable diversity of biological habitats. Sea coasts on both of the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, four separate mountain ranges, including 12,000-foot peaks and active volcanoes, rainforest, cloud forest, temperate zones, swampy marshes, and arid deserts. Such ecological diversity sustained an astonishing diversity of plant and animal life. It's three times as many species of birds as all of North America, more than 1,000 species of orchids, more than 5,000 species of insects. New species were being discovered all the time at a pace that has increased in recent years for a sad reason. We have Cabo Blanco, the beach from earlier. What's new about Cabo Blanco? Not much other than it has been two days since the Bowmans had visited the site uh, where Gutierrez now visits. Carrera Station, where Gutierrez has his office. There's a small research laboratory there. A real national park in Costa Rica that is in fact across the bay, as it was described. In this case, the, the, it's the Gulf of Nicoya. Amaloya, a medical officer here, confirms that a nine-day-old infant sleeping in its crib had been bitten on the foot by an animal that was claimed to be a lizard. Uh, this is a fictional locality in Costa Rica. Vasquez is the, quote, next village up the coast from either Amaloya or Carrera. It's not quite made clear. It's another fictional village, and a child here is bitten by a lizard while it is sleeping, while he or she is sleeping. Puerta Sotrero. A child is bitten by a lizard here, too, uh, and yes, this is also a fictional village. And Columbia University, not fictional, in New York, where Dr. Simpson is emeritus professor and where the sample of the lizard will be sent. Under literary techniques, we have another metaphor where, uh, what do we got here? Quote, watch the afternoon sun fall lower in the sky. Its rays reached beneath the palm trees on page 20. Crichton is having the sun's rays falling and reaching, perhaps making the environment feel more alive. More motifs that uh, continue to emerge throughout the text here. Uh, we're continuing the idea of following how Crichton is building a mystery. While lizard bites are common, basilisk lizard bites, which Gutierrez identified the lizard to be, are not. Hospitalization as a result is unheard of. His research library has no reports of basilisk lizard bites, nor of hospitalization due to lizard bites, nor any record in the International Biosciences Services database. And new reports of more lizard bites are emerging. On page 21, he says, A child in Vasquez, another in Puerta Sortrero, all occurring in the past two months, all involving sleeping children or infants. Gutierrez suspects the presence of a previously unknown species of lizard. He finally finds evidence of the lizard, but it's half-eaten, and only partially available thanks to predation from a howler monkey. He can't solve this mystery yet. Uh, in the discussion, I think there'd be an interesting case to be made for what has become Jurassic Park's MacGuffin. MacGuffin is a common trope in cinema where an object, event, or character serves to set and keep the plot in motion, despite usually lacking intrinsic importance. Furthermore, in fiction, a MacGuffin is necessary to the plot and the motivation for characters, but in and of itself is insignificant, unimportant, or irrelevant, and is usually revealed in the first act, but thereafter declines in importance. 
We spent a few chapters now meeting our MacGuffin in Jurassic Park. It is this mysterious, aggressive, brown-striped lizard. This little terror is nipping and gnawing its way through the beginning of the novel, drawing Marty Gutierrez to start asking serious questions about what this new little critter is and wondering if it's dangerous. Spoiler alert to anyone who hasn't read ahead, but these little lizards are going to drive the mystery for a few chapters more and then be almost an afterthought for about 350 pages, returning only for a brief moment that will bookend this novel in a powerful and truly artistic fashion beyond what we've come to expect from Crichton. Hint, it's at the bottom of page 392 if you want to jump ahead. I can't wait to cover that moment because, as I've said, it's poetic and it's kind of like offering a kicker after 391 pages of setup. We can discuss this again when we get there, but the lizard remains and reports of the lizard bites are what probe Bob Morris from the EPA to begin an investigation. The reports of bites reported caused the investors to be nervous according to Cowan, Swain, and Ross. It's a sample that intrigues Grant at his dig site in Montana. This is the MacGuffin, whereas the rest of the novel isn't about the compies and doesn't address how they got off the island either. When Grant needs to go out and account for all the species that may or may not have gotten off the island, he doesn't care to go find and count the compies' nests. Just the raptors, although he definitely knows that compies have escaped the island, though he is worried that raptors could be getting off too. The compie remains. This mystery sets up the inciting incident which leads to the park inspection and drives their motivations to find the nests, with the purposes of estimating if animals have escaped the island. Further connecting our hero's journey to the MacGuffin as they're flying off to Isla Nublar, the pilot points out Cabo Blanco on page 77, the locality where the compie, the biting, and the mystery began. This is in part of the end of the first act of the novel, just as we're introduced to Jurassic Park, more formally on page 79 in the chapter, Welcome. D does the compie mystery peter out once the plot is in full motion, as per the definition of a MacGuffin? It sure does. On page 88, the last we hear of the compie's remains, Gennaro has requested that the sample in New York be flown to Isla Nublar for it to be examined by Grant. But I believe that's the last we'll hear of those remains. But it served its purpose at this point. We're at Jurassic Park, and the mystery hardly matters any longer. Furthermore, we have ecological criticism. As my guest Lindsay Longprey suggested in episode one introduction, the InGen incident, viewing this novel through an ecological lens, considering what messages are being said, whether intentionally or not, about humanity's impact on the environment bears some fruit early in this novel. As earlier discussed in a description of the locality of Costa Rica, we're told that new species are being discovered all the time at a pace that had increased in recent years for a sad reason. Costa Rica was becoming deforested, and as jungle species lost their habitats, they moved to other areas and sometimes changed behavior as well. So a new species was perfectly possible, believes Marty Gutierrez, but along with the excitement of a new species was the worrisome possibility of new disease. Lizards carried viral disease, including several that could be transmitted to man. The most serious was central saurian encephalitis, or CSE, which caused a form of sleeping sickness in human beings and horses. Here, Crichton aptly describes an ecologically significant biomass that's in critical condition as deforestation is shrinking the unique and severely limited habitat. So that's an important clue as we continue to gather more information that we can use to perform an ecological criticism of the text. And due diligence. This is like Terminator 2 when we used to, to argue whether there would be a Terminator 3, like if there was still enough of a Terminator's remains in the current timeline for Cyberdyne systems to create Skynet and evoke Judgment Day. Well, kind of like the same with the evidence of the lizard that we have in, in the book here. The shell game of where the saliva samples and now the actual dinosaur remains continues. The red tagged saliva sample to be shipped to San Jose, that's still out there somewhere, supposedly in San Jose, and should still be there. And now there's these lizard's remains that are to be sent to New York on page 22, it says. 
I don't know that we're ever going to hear about that survival sample ever again. So what a what a bunch of interesting things that uh, those two little pages managed to cram into them. Just carrying that story a little bit further forward as we follow the bouncing ball that is the, the MacGuffin through the early moments of this first act. Thanks to my guest today, research scientist and dinosaur paleontologist from the Canadian Museum of Nature, Mr. Spiclipius himself, Dr. Jordan Mallon. I really hope he comes back. As I sign off today, let me say thank you again for joining me. If you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything that you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the second lapse graphic novelettes, the infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Capers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes, or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com, or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers, or me on Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park and also not that too. Until next time.